Good morning. Uh, today I'll be reading Genesis 39, verses 1 through 5. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for reading how does a 17-year-old, that's Joseph, how does he end up all alone, no family? How does he end up sold as a slave in Egypt? We've actually taken the last couple of weeks to address that and to look at that. Still, we have some questions, and some of those questions aren't exactly uh, the logistics of things. Some of those questions are just like, what is God doing in all of that? What is God doing here? And some of our questions are, where is all this going? When God works, it doesn't always seem like it's the shortest distance between two points. Like, it doesn't always seem like God, as he works, works in a straight line. It seems like sometimes we go in a lot of different places. And Genesis 39 is no exception to that. As we go through that, I really want you to see this message in two segments. So the first part of this, I want us to get the story really clear from Genesis 39. Get really clear on exactly what does the Bible say, what is going on there. And then after we have clarity and we understand what Scripture is saying, then we'll be in a position to see what God has for us, see what God might be teaching us. So let's, let's get the story really clear, and then we'll see what God has for us. So this chapter, Genesis 39, unfolds really in three sections. And what I find interesting is the first and third section, the first and the last section of chapter 39, they have a lot of similarities. They sound the same in a lot of ways. And then there is this middle section that just is a mess. So let's look at that first section. It's found in uh, many of the verses that Andrew read. So in verse 1, we find out, yes, Joseph has been brought down to Egypt. I know that's a geographical reference, but it definitely seems like his life is not on the upswing. It seems like his life is going down. He's sold as a slave, and he's sold as a slave to the captain of the guard, a man named Potiphar. You notice, though, some words, and they come up immediately. So in verse 2, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. So Whatever circumstance he's in, and it doesn't seem like a good one, the Lord is still with him. The presence of the Lord is with him. And, and it says he had success. He became a successful man, and this was noticeable. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So not only is the Lord with him, but he is being successful, and that success is being noted by others. And responsibility soon followed. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. 
So now Joseph has responsibility. In verse 5, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. So not just Joseph, but now the Egyptian's house is being blessed as well for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So you watch the blessings of the Lord pretty clearly on Joseph at the beginning, but now they extend in, I guess, kind of in the household, but now, like, are the crops doing well? I mean, the field's doing well. So those blessings have extended. And it's a direct tie. The writer makes it, but I think the Egyptians noticed, like, a direct tie to something, someone's with him. The presence of the Lord is with him. In section one of this chapter, the first segment here, the first section ends this way in verse 6. So Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, because of Joseph, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And then there is a signal sent in the writing. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And that word connects us to the next section, section 2. His form, his appearance. So not only is Joseph being successful, but the text says he's good-looking and someone notices. And we actually find out who that person is. And in section two, again, things begin to unravel quickly, at least from our perspective, it becomes a mess. Verse seven, and after a time, Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. And it is. I'm not sure anywhere else in Scripture do you find this. It's just short, but it is bold and brazen, and it is temptation, and it is in your face, and Joseph is going to have to deal with this. And Joseph, from an earthly standpoint, is in a very vulnerable position. And actually, the text sends us all sorts of signals to not let us forget. Remember, Joseph is a slave. Remember, Joseph has a master. Remember, exactly his position here. And so he is in a complicated position, to say the least, when Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, is coming at him. Her words are short. Lie with me. His first response is not that short. As a matter of fact, in verse 8, it says, but he refused. He refused and said to his master's wife, behold, look, because of me, my master doesn't have concern about anything in the house. He's put everything in my charge. He's, he's not even, he's greater in this house than I am. And he hasn't kept back anything from me except you. Because you're his wife. You hear the character of Joseph. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This is certainly pre the Ten Commandments, and also pre the Great Commandment. But both of those point us to our obligation as human beings to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Joseph is saying, I can't do this. I've got a master. So with temptation right in his face, he says, I cannot do this. And he says with like moral clarity, this is sin, and this is wickedness, not just like to my, to my boss, to my master, but this is wickedness in God's sight, most importantly, and I will not do this. She continues to be persistent. We find that in verse 10. It's almost 
we're not having to leave too much to the imagination here. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, to even be with her. I mean, it's almost as if she's saying, Joseph, okay, you say no now, but you know where I am. Whenever you have a different answer, and you, ever, you have a different interest, you know where to find me. I mean, this is temptation front and center. Last week we talked about how poor decisions are made, and often those poor decisions are made through rationalizations and justifications and excuses. And man, I think if anybody ever had some of those to, to play, I mean, if anybody could say like, I'm just in this situation, I don't know how, and I, I, I guess I don't really have a choice here. If anybody had that, Joseph had that here. And yet, despite this open opportunity, despite this excuse he even could make for sin, and maybe justified in his own mind, he does not do that. But there was a day that changed Joseph's life. It seems like he has a few of these days throughout this story that doesn't really go in a straight line. He has a few days that change his life. This is one of them. Verse 11, one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, look, he's brought among us the Hebrew. Who's she talking about? She's talking about her husband, Potiphar. Look, what, look, what the, look at what he's done to us. Like he's brought, and notice she mentions his uh, ethnicity here. He's brought among us a Hebrew, and you can almost hear the disdain in her voice, a, a sense of prejudice there. And he's brought us this Hebrew to laugh at us. He, he came to me to lie with me, and all I could do is I just cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I was crying out, lifting up my voice, and he left his garment beside me, he fled and got out of the house. The relationship she has with her husband, obviously, it's terrible, and she seems to be, I mean, just kind of reading, it seems like she's playing on some prejudice of like, well, you know what the Hebrews do? So it seems like she's playing on that, and she stages things just for the effect that when Potiphar, her husband, comes home, Joseph's master comes home, it's like staged, and she almost uses the coat that was left in her hand. She uses it as a prop. Notice it says in verse 16, she laid up his garment by her until... His master came home and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in, came in to me to, to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me, fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. Just again, Joseph is a young man. I don't know how old he is at this point, but he's young. He is not, he's not even in his country, much less his own home. He is a slave. There's no appeal here. There's no like, well, I, you know, let's hear all the evidence. There's none of that here. We kind of know how this is going to go. And if you're a neutral observer, so let's say you are one of the men of the household and you're there in Potiphar's house. If you thought, man, Joseph just seems to have all the luck, you sure don't think that now. Even if you know some things about like 
Potiphar's wife, you certainly think if the gods, whoever they may be, are like really seem to be blessing him, they surely aren't now. It seems like all of that has run out now. It doesn't seem like whatever relationship he had with God, it doesn't seem like it's benefited him at all now. And that's when you come to section three, which actually you could even ask, like, is there a need for section three? Because if you were just following this story in Egyptian culture, if you were just thinking through this logically, the progression, you would think there is no section three because Joseph's life is immediately terminated. I mean, certainly that would be, that would be the punishment for this kind of crime. You would think like Joseph doesn't make it. it. As a matter of fact, it's kind of telling to me, does someone in the house, does Potiphar himself know something isn't quite exactly right with what his wife said? Because how does he even survive this when it would, in such a brutal culture, it'd be, it'd be over for Joseph. But no, there is a section three in this story. It says in verse 20, Joseph's master took him, didn't kill him, but took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. There's some brutal, tough regimes in this world, and when you get sent to prison or to a prison camp in some of those, it's pretty much guaranteed you're not going to be heard from again. You'll be forgotten. Oh, maybe a family member will remember you, but it's like nobody powerful enough to do any good is going to help you at that point. Your life, for all intents and purposes, is done. And that seems like where Joseph's life could have easily been headed. But language from the, remember section one? Like that same language now gets pulled into section three here. Because in verse 21, you're reading things like, but the Lord was with Joseph. We've heard that before. We've heard that when Before Joseph ended up in this mess, we've heard that the Lord was with him. And now it even adds to this. It says that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. So we we now know something of the heart of, of the Lord for Joseph in this entire mess. Showing him steadfast love, giving him favor now in sight of the keeper of the prison. And responsibility again, that was part of section one. Now it's again happening. Responsibility follows. Success and blessings of the Lord extend. A prison receives the blessing. Look at verse 22. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because, and why is this happening? Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Things turn, things change at the same time. Let's just not forget, with all these amazing promises, with all this favor of the Lord, like we started with Joseph absolutely being blessed by the Lord as a slave. Don't forget that. And now we find Joseph absolutely enjoying the Lord's presence and favor and love as a prisoner. I wanted to start with getting the story really, really clear because this is what I believe. I really do believe God can take many dimensions of this story and speak to your heart because God's spirit takes his word all the time. And so there, there could be things that I don't even mention that the Lord right there in your seat may speak to you and, and push you and lead you and help you and guide you and correct you, convict you. But I do want to show, I do want to share with you a little bit how my eyes have been opened 
I want, I want us to see what God has for us. What is the story teaching? You could at least say, is this story teaching us how to fight through adversity? I would think Joseph would give you a lot of help in being resilient. I, man, he dealt with awful stuff. And yet it seems like when Joseph gets knocked down, it does seem like there's a resilience about him. Is that what this is really about? Or is Genesis 39 primarily going to help us know how to fight temptation? Because, frankly, I can't think of another chapter that I would want to point people to to say, how do you fight temptation? I think this one comes to mind, and I think it's extremely helpful. I don't think there's a better way to honor the Lord with what Joseph is dealing with than his response. He refuses. He responds with clarity, like this is wickedness against God. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to listen. I'm, I'm, I'm going to avoid contact. I'm going to do exactly what Jesus would say later. I'm like, I'm going to cut this out of my life if I, if I can. I'm going to do everything possible not to sin. I mean, this is, this is exactly what we want to say. This is exactly when we're dealing with temptation. Let's talk about what's right and what's wrong, and let's not have any like well, kind of. Well, technically I didn't. Well, maybe she could. I mean, let's not do that. And Joseph gives us some clarity there. Let's play out scenarios. Let's see where consequences go. Let's do that. And I think Genesis 39, Joseph is such a model here. He sees sin rightly. He, He understands the stakes and he runs when he needs to and no rationalizations. And he's willing to even endure like, even if it costs me something. Like, I think I would say to every single person in this room, like, please, please look at Joseph. I would say to anybody who is, who is right now, and surely there are many, right now dealing with temptation towards sexual sin, I would say, listen and learn from Joseph. Please, please. And yet, I think there's more. Because when I read this passage, what if Joseph's temptation-fighting skills, what if that were, even that was just an extremely helpful side benefit? You're reading the story of Joseph. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, he enjoys the full favor of the Lord. There are benefits that come just because you're obedient. And I think, man, Joseph's an example of that. There are benefits you're going to enjoy when you do what God says. Absolutely. But at the same time, I do have a concern that we don't undermine grace in this story. I don't want us to think it's a transaction or that it's a simple formula. I don't think the equation we're meant to dial out of Genesis 39 is because Joseph did this, then God did this. I think so much more is going on. Why do I say that? Why am I so convinced of that? It's because I've read what happens before Joseph. I've read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And every one of them, it says they have been blessed by the Lord. Yet when I read the story of Abraham, he didn't always act in faith. If we're just looking at behavior, I'd say Abraham did things that actually did not warrant the Lord's blessing. When I think about Abraham and Isaac both lying, putting their wife in a position where she could, who knows what could happen to her. 
I, I think it's hard for me to say, well, because Abraham did this, then the Lord blessed him here. Because Isaac did this, then the Lord blessed him here. And certainly by the time you get to Jacob, who deceived and schemed and ran, and it seems like it's hard to make the case for him like, well, he always did what the Lord wanted, and so he was blessed. You, it, it isn't like that. You look in Genesis, and you can't find things that are just this simple transactional formula, as if like you do this, and then God's required to kind of dole out this. You find a very, very different story. And actually, when I hear the words like, the Lord was with, and the Lord blessed, and the Lord gave favor, actually, you're hearing words that are embedded in a covenant relationship of which there's, the explanation seems to be, this is who God is. So you go to Genesis 12, and you hear Abraham what God tells Abraham is, I will bless you and I will bless all the families of the earth because of you. So it's interesting when I'm seeing Joseph and Egyptians are blessed because of Joseph. It's like, this is coming true in the life of one of Abraham's descendants. When I go to Genesis 22, I hear God say to Abraham, I will surely bless you. Genesis 25, after the death of Abraham... God blessed Isaac, his son. Genesis 26, God speaking to Isaac, I will be with you. Hear that word, and I will bless you, you and your offspring. And the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I'm with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. Genesis 28, Jacob hears this from the Lord. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I could go on and on and on. Absolutely, I want to say Joseph is a model of obedience. Follow him in that way. But I want to say there's, there are more dimensions to this. What if this blessing that Joseph is enjoying is about something bigger and greater than merely his obedience in one moment? Because I think it is. What if we're meant to make a connection when Joseph is blessed with all these promises God had made to all of his, like his dad, his grandpa, his great-grandpa, saying, I will bless you. I'm going to bless your family. Despite your wanderings, despite your foolishness, despite all the, all the problems this family is going to have, I am setting my blessings on you. What if this is more about, what if this is more about God than it is even about Joseph? What if this is about God being undeniably true to himself? So when Joseph is a slave, God is going to bless him there. When Joseph is in prison, God is going to bless him there. God will be true to his promises, faithful to this family. You see, God made a covenant. I love the way uh, Tom Schreiner just simplifies it. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. But the interesting thing about this covenant is that God it's kind of on both sides of this covenant making the promises. Like, I'm going to guarantee this is going to happen. And God, because he is good, because he is great, because he wants his name and his mercy known throughout all the world, made a choice to bless this family with undeserved favor. This family, with unearned grace, he showed mercy. Does that mean they don't have any problems? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. Of course they experience consequences of dumb decisions. Of course they do. Of course they have to walk to, through sorrow and death and grieving and loss. 
This is part of life in a fallen world. But even as they walk through those things, they walk with a God who is committed to them. God doesn't change. This is the story of God giving grace to the undeserving. Yet another example of God taking those who are lowly and lifting them up. This is more evidence of God keeping his promises. What if, what if this blessing of Joseph is about something greater? And what if this blessing goes beyond even circumstances and feelings? I'd say it has to. It has to. In Joseph's story, it's like, you want to tell Joseph when he's sold into slavery, cheer up, things are going to get better. But it actually seems like, no, no, things are going to get worse. Even after you've enjoyed the presence and the favor of the Lord, things may not go exactly the way you want. So if we think having God's favor means we never get into any jams and we have zero sorrows, then we've misread it. We certainly haven't appreciated the Joseph story. And I do have to wonder sometimes, like, did, how did Joseph process all this? I know it's, we're, not, we're not told, like, what he, what he was thinking, but sometimes it's hard for me not to read a character like this and go, okay, if I'm Joseph, what am I feeling like on day 18 of being sold as a slave? Day 75 in prison. I, I think I know how I'm feeling. I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm like ready to stand in a line at the magnet shop to say, I am highly favored. I'm going to put that magnet on my refrigerator, get that bumper sticker on my car. Blessed by God. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm in that category. I think I'm asking the Lord, what's going on? You, you, you said I was blessed. How, how, how does this match that? I don't know Joseph's mind, but I I would surely think there had to be days where he had to wrestle with some deep doubts. And still, when you're a person who is in covenant relationship with God, something happens, and that is God doesn't leave you. The Lord is with you. You receive grace from God even in these awful circumstances, and that blessing just seems to have a compounding ripple effect, which is amazing for Joseph. And a wonderful story to read. But what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? How do you find yourself in a covenant relationship with God? Because the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, those are 4,000 years ago. But here you are today. How do you find yourself in a relationship with God. And I have another question. What if the God of this blessing, what if the God of this blessing has made a new covenant with us? What if there is a new covenant? Same God. Same deep mercy he extends. What if he's made this chosen relationship with us? Two parties making binding promises to Each other, what if that is available for us to enter into a new covenant? Because the night that Jesus, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he died, it says he took bread, he broke it, and he he said, This, this bread, this this cup that symbolizes my blood, this is a new covenant. These are symbols of a new covenant. And it is for the forgiveness of sin. I'm making a new covenant. So, yes, there are covenants to Abraham and Isaac and 
and Jacob. But now there is a new covenant that Jesus is initiating. This would bring the ultimate blessing. Jesus died to seal this new covenant. And those who believe in Jesus are brought into this new covenant. And this covenant isn't just about one particular family. It's actually for all nations, all ethnicities, all social status. It is, it is permanent. It is eternal. And the same God who acted faithfully to Abraham is, is the one who makes this new covenant with us. As you read about the new covenant, there's, there's so, many, so many encouraging things about the new covenant. No, it's not exactly the same as the covenant made with Abraham and his family, but with the new covenant. Actually, you read even some of the, there, there are several parallels. Remember, in that covenant with Abraham, it's like, I will be with you. And Jesus, Jesus makes that promise, but he makes it in such a powerful way when he says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And I will come to you as my spirit, the Holy Spirit comes. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. The presence of the Holy Spirit means that God isn't just like, yeah, he's not, he's busy, so he can't be here in our galaxy. He's about three away, but he's going to send us presents occasionally and remind us how much. That's not the way it is. It's actually, no, here we are. He's present with us, in us, working on us. Not only does the new covenant bring the presence of the Holy Spirit, but with the new covenant, we have a new heart. Like that heart of stone now has just been broken up. And we have a heart that is flesh and it's soft toward things of the Lord. And we have a deeper knowledge. We aren't going through motions. We don't have to be. His word will come alive in us because of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant. The new covenant means we're in a community of believers. We're meant to be set in a group of people who've been brought into a new covenant. So meetings like this remind me, here we are. Yes, we, we share a lot of the same interests, I'm sure. But there's more than that going on. We're part of a new covenant that God has brought in together. And, and here we are meeting together as part of that new covenant family. Not because of biology, but because God did a deep work in our heart and we responded to him in faith and obedience and returned from everything else. Even baptism is a symbol of that new covenant. Yes, it's happened. I have to tell you what, as I grasp the story of Joseph and God's favor to him, I couldn't help but think through. This story sounds so familiar to me of a, of a person experiencing the covenant blessings of God. It sounds so familiar to me because I know the story very, very well because I know what it's like to taste the new covenant that God's made with people, with sinners like you and I. And then I look back at my life and I think, yeah, Joseph was blessed. And, and then I think through... I mean, 2020 for everybody was a tough year. And many of you know, it was an extremely tough year for our family. And I think through of gravesides and memorial services that I, I didn't want to be at because I didn't want the event that caused them to happen. Like, I never wanted that to happen. And yet, like, even in those moments, you're walking away knowing the Lord is with me. Disasters happen, but I'm not abandoned. I, I began processing this, just I had studied in the morning and I went out for 
a run, and I began, even in the middle of the run, I'm sure people were wondering, why is he sweating so much, but also, like, why? He seems like he's emotional. Like, what's going on? But I began thinking through of how the Lord has given favor in my life. I think about three kids that are absolute blessings to my wife and I. I think about the circumstances that the Lord chose to arrange for me to even meet my wife. I think about the, the times I go back a little bit deeper and realize the times where I was called, like called into this ministry to serve the Lord's church in this way. Just unmistakable. I go to places where I felt like my heart was, I mean, I wasn't like running like a, a, a super prodigal, but my heart was drifting, getting cold, and I think the Lord drew me back and like the Lord in those times, multiple times, I knew the Lord is with me. I think about the churches where I've landed. I, I think these are communities of grace and the Lord just put me in that when he didn't have to. He surely could have had a different path. I think of the home that I grew up in. I think of the parents that I had and their simple, strong faith. I think there are a lot of people that could look at my life and just, let's say they didn't have any sort of deep, theology that had like God is sovereign and good and wise and all that. They could look at my life and they go, Curtis is a pretty lucky guy. And you know, as far as they were saying that, they would be like 100% right, except for that doesn't cover half of it. What I think would have to be said is God, not because Curtis deserved it, not because he worked hard enough for it, not because he behaved himself really well, kept a good attitude, was nice to lots of people, because there were plenty of places where those, those things were not the case. You would just have to say this, God in his mercy brought Curtis into the new covenant, and this is exactly what he does for people in the new covenant, and he doesn't leave us, and he doesn't forsake us. And I say my story but I wonder what story is God writing for you? Have you been brought into this new covenant? Have you? You can understand why, like, I want you to be very clear. This isn't about, like, what religion you consider yourself a part of. I, I want it to be so much more personal than that. Do you realize that God says, you are part of this, and you will be blessed regardless of circumstances, regardless of whether you always see it, like, and it seems all super clear to you in a moment. What story is God writing for you? Because I do, I do want you to be more like Joseph. In temptation this week, be 100% like Joseph and run. Run if you need to and resist and like stand strong in the Lord, absolutely. But more than ever, I want you to be convinced of the faithfulness of God. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you could probably grasp why something so personal to me I want to share with you, even if we're strangers. Like, if that hasn't become a reality to you, you could understand why we'd say, let's talk more about that. Like, and let, let's do that sooner as opposed to later. Because I want you to know, and I want those who have put their faith in Jesus to know, the Lord is with you. I want you to even walk out these doors knowing the Lord's favor is with me. And because sometimes you're probably not going to feel like it. And sometimes it's not going to be seen like that evident. Sometimes there will be people. Surely this week there will be people that will have seasons of loneliness. And I, I would hope not, but I, I'm sure someone's going to be treated unjustly this week. And there's going to be a season where sin is really ugly and the consequences are horrible. And you're going to have to deal with it. 
and there are going to be ripple effects. And in the midst of all that, I want you to have a confidence welling up in you knowing that God is faithful. I've entered this covenant because of what Jesus has done, and he will protect me, and he has given me undeserved favor, and the presence of the Lord is with me. And because of that, I have a future because God is using his power, which is like omnipotent power, to work things for my good. Full stop, and it's not going to change. And I want to pray that you not just hear, hear a guy talking about it, but that the Lord presses that so deep into your heart, you, you never can forget it. You never can forget it. Oh, Lord, do that. Do that for the good of people. Look, let us clarify, Lord, our relationship with you. And if there are those who have gone through motions but have never been brought into a relationship that you bought and paid for with your own blood, I pray today would be the day where any running stops and where reality sets in. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness. I pray for the person who thinks they have done wrong so then they can't be a part of your blessing. I pray they would know what your cross was all about and the new life your resurrection gives. I pray these aren't just mere concepts and words, but the reality lands and sinks on our heart. And then, Lord, do this. Make Ogletown a people filled with gratitude that we have experienced what it means to be in a new covenant relationship with you. And so whether we end up in places similar to Joseph, that may be the awful places that we'd never choose to go to, may we know just as Joseph knew and even as others saw, the Lord is with us. Do that for your own glory, Lord. Make your name great. You increase even if we de decrease. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.